you can maximize the athlete's ability at younger ages to learn that body control and to really challenge it in different ways while also, you know, minimizing some of the negative effects of just hammering the same sport year round, which physically and psychologically is is counterproductive in most cases. One of the things I love about hosting this podcast is getting to talk with some of the brightest trainers and coaches in our field on a weekly basis. Now, even though I may not be a hockey guy per se, learning more about the athletes and sports I don't know as much about ultimately makes me a better coach, which is why I'm so excited to have Kevin Neald back on the show here today. Kevin is the head performance coach for the Boston Bruins where he oversees all aspects of designing and implementing the team's performance training program, as well as monitoring the player's performance, workload, and recovery. Prior to Boston, Kevin spent two years as an assistant SNC coach for the San Jose Sharks after serving as the director of a private sports performance facility in New Jersey for seven years, where he worked with pro, college, junior, and elite-level youth hockey players. He also served as a strength and conditioning coach with the U.S. women's Olympic ice hockey team for five years. So the guy knows a thing or two about hockey training. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. <laughs> like I said up top, I'm definitely not a hockey guy, and the closest I get to playing ice hockey is when I ice skate with my daughter every winter at Christmas time. But that doesn't mean I don't love chatting with Kevin because he's such a bright guy and he's got such a great perspective on training as a whole. So in this episode, we cover a ton of different topics. We start with how to train and address FAI, or femoral acetabular impingement. We talk about his thoughts on movement variability in training. Where does it fit into the daily program? Where does it fit into the weekly or the monthly program? We talk about building the brakes and eccentric training and why they're so important in sports. And last but not least, what he's learned during his time in the NHL and professional sports. The bottom line is, this is a great chat, and I really think you're going to love it. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome episode with Kevin Neald. Did you know that in any given year, 40% of the trainers and coaches in our industry will leave our industry? Maybe that's why it seems like almost every day I talk to trainers and coaches who are frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, let me tell you how I can help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you. People who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is going to take the last 20 plus years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In the cert, you'll learn how to use my R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. 
You'll learn the exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym to help your clients squat, hinge, press, and pull with awesome technique. You'll learn my streamlined assessment process that will help you determine the exact movements your clients should be performing when they come in the gym. And last but not least, you'll learn how to create relationships and build rapport with virtually everyone you train so you can get the best possible results. Of course, there's a lot more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the CERT is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the CERT only open twice per year for a limited time. But if you join my free insiders list now, you'll be able to save $200 when my next group opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, that's completecoachcertification.com and then stay tuned for our launch emails very soon. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you'll join us when the next Complete Coach Certification launches. Kevin, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Super excited to have you back on. What's new in your neck of the woods, man? What's been going on? Uh, I appreciate you having me, Mike. I, uh, As I've told you before, I'm a longtime listener of the physical preparation podcast and appreciate everything uh, everything you're doing for the industry. So thank you. I'm um, honored to be a, a guest here. Um, new for me, I, you know, obviously we uh, have rolled into our off-season program at work and, you know, this time of year, a little bit of a balance of we have some guys in town that are still training, but then also looking at uh, we have a development camp coming up in a few weeks. We have the draft uh, right prior to that. We just came off the combine. So a little bit more focus too on, on you know, the next generation of uh, of hopefully NHL players that we're working with here. So um, it's been good. And then, you know, obviously the just trying to make up for lost time and spend as much time with the, the family as I can here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those of uh, our listeners that are unfamiliar with you, would you give us like the formal bio, who you are, where you're at, title, role, all that good stuff? Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i the head performance coach for the Boston Bruins. Um, I'm entering my sixth year in Boston. Prior to that, I was fortunate to spend a couple years as an assistant with Mike Potenza in San Jose with the Sharks. Um, and prior to that, I spent seven years in the private sector, uh, five of which I was also working with the USA Hockey Women's Olympic team. So um, that's kind of the the quick and dirty. <laughs> I love it, man. And for those that are watching, man, this guy's got the, the hockey beard and everything, man. You look like you fit just right into the game. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've always been told I had a face for radio. So I think I try to hide behind <laughs> the beard as much as possible here, but you and me both, man, that's, <laughs> I, I don't know who talked me into the video <laughs> podcast, but I'm giving it a run. So man, I've got like all kinds of different questions I want to ask you here today. Cause sometimes We'll like deep dive on one specific area, but with you, I've got a whole bunch of different things from career development to hockey training to some of the things that you put putting out on social media. So the first thing that I want to talk to you about actually comes from one of my online clients. And I thought this was such a great question because in the hockey world, obviously FAI, uh, when you're talking about impingements and these sorts of things going on at the hip, how are you guys going about programming and, and trying to find ways to work around these issues or maybe work to prevent them with some of your younger athletes? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, when you're 
you're looking at any injury, there's really two broad speaking strategies. You can add some things that you're hoping are going to help the situation and you can remove things that may be provocative for the situation. And, you know, I think for us, it's a matter of really trying to wrap our head around the individual limitations that a player may present with. So, you know, where are they in, you know, are we looking at potentially some concerning resting positions and movement pattern biases that we think may lead to more, you know, more premature closure of the front of the hip joint. And we're looking at that as potentially a long-term risk factor for the development of FAI. So, you know, that's a case where maybe there isn't a, the player's structure is not progressed to a point where there's a significant structural limitation now, but there's a movement tendency that's of concern. Yes. Um, you know, another case may be where a player structure has progressed to a point where there's a movement limitation and then just trying to, to understand how that's affecting their movement. So how does that interact with how does their hip structure interact with their uh, ankle structure and mobility with their thoracic spine rotation and, you know, some of these other factors that are going to influence how they move more globally and, and maybe how they're positioning and sequencing movement. Um, and then, you know, I, I think we can look at at strategies that address those things differently, meaning, you know, if there's a, a uh, p- player that has some anterior core weakness, maybe has more of an anterior weight bearing bias, we can look at coaching strategies and some core training strategies that may help to address that, help get them centered over their feet a little bit more, help, you know, kind of reestablish that uh, rib cage stacked over the pelvis position. Um, and then, you know, go down that road. If a player has, um, you know, a more progressive structural limitation, then, you know, we might look at what's the best way to minimize this being provocative, you know, a, a common finding in ice hockey players is that they have a a stiff posterior hip capsule, right? So what can we do from a, a daily preparation standpoint to, you know, help minimize that then exacerbating their structural limitation, for example. Um, The other part, which is, I, I think equally as important is just being really conscious of how we're coaching movement and what exercises we're asking players with those significant limitations to perform. Because, you know, at the end of the day, there's that structure of having a either overgrown acetabular hood or femoral head neck offset, both of which limit hip flexion. And most of the time, it's some combination of, of both of those limitations in players. We, we know that that is going to cause some issues down the road, right? So yep. we have to, um, and then in a sport like hockey, where you're in a deep hip flexion position for the bulk of the time you're on the ice, you're repetitively going through extreme ranges of motion through the hip at high velocities, uh, at high volumes in our setting, you know, <laughs> six days a week. There's an element of the game itself has become a, a bit of an occupational hazard for that structure. So we need to be extra conscious about not adding more wear and tear to a joint that is already in a, you know, at an at-risk position and is uh, being asked to perform 
movements that are already going to add some stress to it. So we, you know, so what does that look like in an actual training standpoint? I think, you know, obviously there's a high degree of individuality to it, but um, just limiting hip flexion depth on a lot of different patterns, even half kneeling positions. Sometimes we are putting pads or some sort of bolster under the back knee so that the front hip isn't limiting and causing a a pelvic tilt that we don't want. So um, just being really conscious about, you know, if, if we're loading through the spine in any capacity that there's not movement through the spine while it's under load. So, you know, what is that point of hip flexion where a player starts to tuck their pelvis under where they hit and you start to see some sort of lateral tilt Um, and then just bringing that to the player's awareness so that they have a better understanding of deep and all the way down for you is here. So everything that we're doing, try to find that spot and just hit that spot every time, but don't push past that. Yeah. Today's podcast is also brought to you by Exerfly. If you're unfamiliar with flywheel training, it's a method of strength training where your athletes generate resistance by using the inertia of a flywheel instead of traditional gravity-based resistance training. By accelerating and then decelerating a disc, your athletes generate resistance at all phases of the movement. This allows for high force training as well as eccentric overloading without the need for crazy heavy weights. I'll be honest, the Exerfly is arguably my favorite piece of equipment in the gym right now. And if you're interested in building a better set of brakes, either to keep your athletes healthier or improve their power and explosiveness, flywheel training with Exerfly can definitely help. To learn more, head over to exerfly.com. Again, that's exerfly.com. Now, back to the show with Kevin. It's something I feel like I've talked about for years. I call it your functional range. Everybody has this model or this idea of what full range is, but full range, like you said, is very individual and depends on where somebody moves, what compensations they have. And, you know, true full range isn't a great idea for everybody based on, like you said, like their body structure, their architecture, potential compensations that they're demonstrating. Like just because you can do it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. No, it's a it's a great way to describe it. And I think, you know, another thing that probably gets overlooked a lot is just the relationship between the length of the femur and the length of the torso. And when mm-hmm. you're doing uh, an exercise like a back squat or a front squat or even a, you know, a goblet squat, the load is always kind of centered over the midfoot. So if yep. that bar is on your back, your torso has to lean further forward to keep it over your midfoot. So if you have short femurs and a long torso, you may be able to perform a back squat with a more upright torso. If you have long femurs and a relatively short torso, you're going to be in more of a hip hinge deadlift pattern with that bar on your back. And that obviously changes the shearing forces that are going through your spine. And then you layer in, you know, potentially a, a hip flexion limitation. And, you know, that can cause, you know, some, premature the the pelvis is rotating backwards and then creating some segmental shearing stress in addition to what the bar is causing so you know i I think over the years you just kind of develop a a intuition and an eye test that you know you have a, a sense of you know this exercise probably isn't a great fit for for this player based on their structure based on their movement archetype and Um, you know, typically, obviously you can layer in the player's preferences and what they've done successfully, if they've had any issues with certain exercises in the past and find some common ground on what's an exercise that's going to deliver what we're hoping to get out of 
you know, of that block of that day of the training program um, that also then fits their structure and minimizes the risk of, of suffering any sort of setback or, you know, just unnecessary wear and tear. Sure. Remind me, are you a massage therapist or did you get a degree or, or something in that realm? Um, I would describe myself as a non-practicing massage therapist. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I have, uh, I got my massage license and that's still current, but we're fortunate to have, um, you know, I, I work in the building with three physical therapists, an athletic trainer, a full-time massage therapist, a part-time massage therapist. We have two chiropractic consultants that have excellent soft tissue skill sets. So, um, I, I'm fortunate that, uh, I'm not needed in that area in my current position. Well, okay. So, but this leads me beautifully into my next question. Thinking about integration, right? So when you start talking about this person has a stiff posterior hip, you know, what level of integration do you guys have, you know, or, or would you like to have to help fix some of these issues, right? Because, you know, there are some people that are more malleable than others, right? If you got a 38 year old vet, you know, maybe they're not as malleable as the 22 year old kid that's fresh faced and coming off the combine. But what level of integration do you guys have access to to really try and make some impactful change or if nothing else, just keep these guys healthier for a longer period of time? Yeah, we uh, our medical staff and our performance staffs this past off season. Um, got, got together and spent a lot of time talking about the model that we wanted to work under collectively moving forward. We put together a mission statement, a set of core values um, that were common to us as a as an entire cohesive department. And awesome. you know, I, I think part of the goal with that was to just really establish that we are one unit all pulling towards the same goal. And um, you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but I, I think you know, traditionally people assign certain responsibilities to certain roles based on the title. Um, and then as a result of that, things that may happen throughout the season are then attributed as, you know, successes or failures for one department. And, and you know, the example that I would give is if a player comes back from an injury and they get re-injured, who, who takes the blame for that? Who's typically assigned the blame for that? And, you know, I think most people listening would say it's probably the medical staff. They cleared right. them prematurely. You know, another case is if a player comes back and they don't perform well, whether that's uh, because the coach thinks they're not in good enough shape or whether their, their uh, skill level and execution isn't up to par, you might look at that and say, well, that's a performance department issue. And right. If you look under the hood a little bit, sometimes what you see is that, you know, a, a player is being held back from performing activity by a medical staff because they are hyper focused on allowing an injury to heal. So the performance staff is handcuffed in what they're allowed to do with that player mm -hmm. until the player's injury, you know, quote unquote heals. And then it's okay, now he's cleared. And, you know, the performance staff may have days or, you know, maybe a week or so to ramp that player back up and then they're thrown right back into competition. Well, right. you know, in that example, the player's lack of conditioning and lack of execution in their return really stems back to that athlete not having an opportunity to continue to train during the injury healing process, right? Right. And the same the same uh, theme of discussion could be used with the other example where, 
you know, if you have a medical staff that's fully supportive of, of the performance staff, you know, working around an injury and, and getting that player active early on and the performance staff is picking the wrong exercises. They're not successfully working around the limitation. They're not anticipating the trickle down effect of that limitation and how that may affect the player's movement. Um, how that player may be biasing more stress towards different segments to offload the injured area. If those things aren't accounted for, and then the player returns and gets re-hurt, or if there aren't enough uh, stresses that are within sport that are strategically ramped up to allow that player to transition smoothly, well, now the re-injury can really be reframed as as a performance department failure of process. And right. you know, I think in both those examples, the take-home message there is that it's nobody's fault, but it's all of our responsibility to make sure that we're putting the player in the best position possible to return from those yeah. situations. So with our staff, we have uh, strongly internalized that feeling. And we meet on a daily basis to talk about everybody. So if anything, a player takes a puck off the foot in the night, the game before, and we anticipate that affecting their training availability or potentially their practice status or how much load we want to put that player under from a practice standpoint, we have all those discussions every single morning so that when we separate and, and mobilize all the resources we're fortunate to have in the organization, we're making sure that the players are getting uh, are being exposed to stresses that may help in an injury or an ailment recover and heal um, or re-strengthen and recondition. And then also making sure that we're on the same page for what that player should be avoiding in the interim. Mm -hmm. I am very interested in your current thoughts on movement variability. Obviously, a very hot topic, say, five to 10 years ago. I know something you and I both still hold uh, a certain amount of respect for. So kind of two questions here. Number one, where does it fit into an individual program, you know, like a program you write for a month? And then on that, from that same perspective or that same lens, where does it fit into the bigger picture of an entire offseason? Yeah, I movement variability, I, I look at not just as a you know, a series of exercises that you implement at different stages throughout the the uh, annual cycle, but just as much as a philosophy and way of looking at things. And, mm. you know, from my perspective, movement variability can kind of be bucketed into two general categories. There's micro movement variability, which is on the individual joint level, and then macro movement variability, which is more on global movement patterns and movement sequencing. And, you know, from a micro movement variability standpoint, I, it, you know, every joint has a physiologically full range of motion that that joint is intended to go through. And I think what can happen sometimes is players get into these habits or routines of, you know, just kind of hammering mobility through a single pattern or single direction. And, you know, the analogy that I use is if, if you go to the beach and you have a bucket of water and there's a flat patch of sand and you dump that water onto the sand slowly, what happens is that water, because there are no restraints on where it goes, that water will spread out across the sand and there's really no significant change in, there's no deformation to the sand. You're not getting a huge hole. There's not a lot of erosion from the water, right? right. But if you take your finger and you just draw a little path in the sand and then you pour that bucket of water down that path, that water is then going to pick up sand on the edges and that 
that path that you just drew is going to become a little bit wider and a little bit deeper. And the easiest example of that that uh, I think most people, particularly us in the United States, are familiar with is the Grand Canyon. That's essentially how that was formed over a prolonged period of time that, you know, you get the water from the river and then, you know, obviously the wind that comes in afterwards and it digs this massive groove through the earth. So, you know, what does that mean for joint range of motion? It means that if stress only has one path where it's clear to go through, that's where it's going to go over and over and over and over and over. And you're then more likely to create excessive wear or tear or stress through specific segments of a joint instead of that force being more evenly distributed around the whole joint. From an application standpoint for that concept, I think, you know, returning back to some of the like 3D uh, flexibility and joint mobility concepts that were probably more popular 20 years ago than they are now. Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that we do is we have a constantly changing, you know, pre-practice preparation routine where there are just very subtle differences in the directions and positions and patterns that we're using to help open up range of motion in a specific area. So, you know, I mentioned the posterior hip capsule uh, as being a point of emphasis in hockey players and just trying to maintain some, some length in that area. So for us, you know, there's an exercise called a supported hip airplane that, you know, when you open up the hip, you get uh, some good length through the, the adductor, particularly the adductor magnus. And when you close down, if you do it the right way, you should get a little bit of a stretch in the posterior hip capsule. So that is different from a lateral hip rock where you start in a quadruped position and then, you know, cross one knee over the opposite ankle and then shift your hips into that side to get some, get some motion in that posterior hip capsule. That's slightly different from going through a similar pattern, but in more of a, a pigeon pose position, uh, you know, from, uh, that the yogis on <laughs> listening may be familiar with. So yeah. all three of those address the posterior hip capsule. All three of those do that in a slightly different way and in a slightly different direction. So, um, you know, there's a ton of, of examples of different ways that you can execute that, whether you're integrating, uh, you know, some you're integrating multiple directions within a set routine or whether you're rotating routines, you know, on a daily or weekly basis to make sure that you're tapping into opening up the joint from multiple directions. I, I just think that that's an important thing to keep in mind where you're not just hammering the same routine in the same direction over and over and over and over, because you may be creating some laxity in areas that is going to compromise your joint stability over time while also minimizing the opportunity for that joint to disperse force evenly throughout it. So, that's that's my view on micro variability. From a macro variability standpoint, you know, there's it's a similar thought process, but now you're looking at the control of the body in different patterns that allows them allows the body to find a solution to unique movement requirements. So, you know, I, I think from a a dynamic warm up standpoint, there are lots of opportunities to include movement in different directions that are challenging coordination and um, the body's ability to navigate 
you know, moving in different directions with different body orientations, going from single to double leg stance, um, and vice versa, you know, controlling single leg, hopping, bounding, um, you know, just finding ways that a place to fit those, those types of patterns. I, I also think from a strength training standpoint that there's a, a trade-off between if you, if you default back to having a very uh, small number of primary exercises, then the athletes are going to get very good at performing those exercises. But the transfer of the strength that's developed in those exercises to patterns outside of those exercises will become compromised. Yep. So, you know, I think that there's a, you know, again, there's a trade-off to you need enough repetition of a pattern for the athlete to develop competence in that pattern. But if you want to maximize the transfer of that strength to sport, I think there's a lot of value in developing that strength through different movement patterns. So, you know, there's, there's still an ongoing debate between single leg and double leg training within single leg dominant training. There's, you know, a, a unsupported, uh, other leg, there's uh, split stance positions, there's, you know, dynamic lunging positions where you're going from single leg support to double leg support, but in a staggered position, you have, you know, sagittal plane, transverse plane, frontal plane, dominant patterns for each of those. And, you know, I think ultimately, to maximize the transfer to a dynamic environment, like certainly like hockey, and I would argue most team sports, there's an argument to be made that you really need to develop strength using some combination of all of those patterns. Dude, that answer was so good. I mean, I just want to start with this idea of, I guess I hadn't thought of it this way, but movement variability is just like, it's baked into my philosophy as well. Like, it's not like a thing, like I'm constantly trying to check that box, you know, uh, obviously at the start of an off season, when people have probably lost or progressively lost it over the course of an in-season competition, travel, all that, it tends to shrivel, right? So obviously it's a big emphasis at the start, but I love that idea of just keeping it in. I mean, that's what I've done. I feel like pretty well over the years is always try and keep that in. And second, I love your idea of strength across kind of all these different planes, right? Because I'm sure you, you've seen it as well, right? The guy that's got like a 500 pound squat, but then you put him in a single leg squat position and he's falling over or you try and make him go side to side in what we would call a front or transverse plane type lunge. It's like 12, 12 pounds, right? They have no strength, stability, control in those positions. So I love that idea of sure. There's, there's a, a time and a place for just pure output, right? In those big bang lifts, but being strong, like you alluded to frontal plane, transverse plane, single leg, split stance, all these different postures and positions is probably the best way to look at it for most sports. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, I, <laughs> I I also think, and I don't know if we want to dive down this hole uh, t today or not, but, you know, this is part of the, the reason why playing multiple sports at young ages is so powerful. Even if you know that you only want to focus on hockey or basketball or soccer as you get older, being exposed to all of these different movement patterns, uh, movement skills, you know, controlling implements with your feet, with your hands, you know, projectiles moving <laughs> towards you and away from you in sports like lacrosse and baseball. 
um, you know, all of those things are teaching your body how to control and move in these different patterns. And that's one thing that I've really come to appreciate over the last several years working at this level is just how, how incredible the top end talent players are at, at controlling their body to find solutions, to be able to execute a skill under really challenging environments. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you see a few years ago, there was a, a incredible goal that Alexander Ovechkin scored. This may have, this might be over a decade old. Now I'm uh, losing track of time as I get older, (laughs) but you know, he kind of got tripped up and as he's spiraling through the air, he puts his stick behind his head and then hits the puck into the net while he's in midair. Um, you know, I, I think he's a guy, uh, David Pasternak on our team is a guy that is known for setting up on a particular area of the ice and taking one-timers, especially on the power play and finding success there. And, you know, I think you look at those and it's, it's the same shot type from the same general shot location. Sometimes it goes into the same spot on the net and it's like, well, that's the same pattern. And the reality is that the puck is coming in from a slightly different place every time. The way that their body is facing is often in a different place. How long they've had to set up and where their weight is distributed is different. You know, how they follow through. Sometimes they drop down to one knee. Sometimes they're uh, they're able to stay more upright. You know, where is the defensive pressure coming from? What are the ice conditions? Where is the goalie moving? And when you look at those, there are subtle nuances that yep. they are navigating in real time at exceptionally high speeds that allow them to execute the skill in a, a unique environment consistently. And it just so happens that a lot of those players also played lots of different sports growing up, but yep. you know, that's one way where you can maximize the athlete's ability at younger ages to learn that body control and to really challenge it in different ways while also, you know, minimizing some of the negative effects of just hammering the same sport year round, which physically and psychologically is is counterproductive in most cases. Well, our mutual friend Eric Cressy just posted something in the last couple of weeks talking about how, you know, with a lot of these young baseball players, they'd be better off just playing multiple sports and then not even playing travel baseball until they're, you know, mid teenagers, right? I think he said fifteen or sixteen years old because I mean, I've got kids in my neighborhood now that are 10 or 11 years old and playing 70 plus baseball games every summer. That's half a major league schedule, dude. That's insane when you think about it like that. Yeah. And, you know, I I think uh, Eric reposted that from several years ago, which just shows that this is a uh, an ongoing battle. And, you know, the the reality is that a lot of those, quote unquote, offseason spring leagues and tournament teams and exposure camps are very financially lucrative for people. And that's why they continue to persist. And that's why there's such a consistent effort to convince parents that those are completely necessary. But I had years ago, I was working with a youth hockey team that was a U 16 team that played over 90 games in their season. Oh my gosh. So that's more than an NFL team plays. So you know, I, I think uh, I think it's gotten completely out of hand. And, you know, hopefully there's there's more people like Eric. You know, I know he shared some information from James Andrews, too, that is sharing a similar message. I know uh, 
Lee Taft, who's a friend of the show, oh, is, yeah. is being yes. outspoken on the issue too. So hopefully more people that understand the development process and understand the uh, the social, the psychological, but even just the athletic consequences of early specialization continue to speak up about it. Well, one thing that'll be interesting uh, as you continue to, to hang out and you do these combines and all that, I think it was Lee that told me this, but what you're seeing at the NBA level is when these guys go in and do their combines and they do their medicals, like sometimes their knees as teenagers, as early 20 year olds look like they're in their thirties because they played so much. So you're seeing these like very early onset degenerative changes in key joints. So I wonder uh, if you guys will see that trend, if you continue to see kids, you know, playing more than an NHL season before they've even gotten to you. Yeah, I, I think that that has already started to to show itself within our sport. You know, there was right. a, a study, I think it was published in 2013 from uh, Philippon's group out in Colorado that mm. looked at, you know, they, they uh, MRI'd the hips of youth hockey players and essentially found that there was a progressive increase from uh in hockey they're called peewees bantams and midgets but the the age groups are you know in that uh 11 12 to 13 14 15 to then 16 through 18 and you know essentially what they found is by the time players reached the u18 level over 90 percent of them had a hip structure that could be diagnosed as fai and a hundred percent had labral tears so in that, there was a linear increase across those three different age groups uh, to get to that point. So, you know, I, I think there's probably some messages there about about the imaging process. And, you know, there's a right. word of caution to be careful what you look for because you're going to find something um, right. if you look in the right places based on the sport. But uh, also uh, just what the current landscape of youth sports is, is causing from a structural adaptation standpoint. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I also think that we were living in a time, I remember years ago when I was a grad student at UMass, we had a physical activity lab where they were doing mm -hmm. research on, you know, the epidemiological factors that lead to health issues. And there was an, an interesting finding from one of the studies that I remember uh, them talking about that, you, you know, you have these markers of physical activity that if people hit certain thresholds of, you know, time accumulated in moderate physical activity, that risk of all cause, all cause mortality and, and cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, a lot of these common health issues decrease when you hit that threshold. But it was interesting that inactive time was an independent risk factor. And, you know, I think that mm. caught the attention of a lot of the grad students because a lot of us spend all day in classes, yeah, uh, sitting behind the desk, SDAs, then going into a lab and you sit all day long. And then, you know, maybe you're going out for a bike ride or a run or going to the gym and you're going hard for that hour. But then, you know, the other 15 hours of your waking day, you're sitting and completely right. inactive. Right. And. I think there's an element of that with youth sports today too, that kids, you know, we have physical education classes that are being cut. We have um, longer time in classrooms with less recess and there's just yeah. more inactive time, but then also more highly competitive youth sport. So there's less just free play activity time for, for the kids. So 
Yeah. Um, something else to think about. Absolutely, man. Okay. I'm really interested in this topic because something that you've been talking about, I know I just did an entire show with Matthew Ibrahim talking about this. How are you training the brakes, so to speak? So the brakes and deceleration with your athletes these days. I think we look look at it from a few different lenses. One is, you know, what are the positions that players are in when they're transitioning? So, you know, in our sport, it's and and this is probably common uh, across most field sports as well. But you know, there's a lot of deep hip and knee flexion positions. There's um, a lot of uh, angled segments. Um, you know, for us, there's some inside leg loading and some outside leg loading depending on the pattern. Um, the push-off directions out of those transitions uh, can can be unique in a consideration. But so we look at, you know, what can we do to help make sure that the player can get into those positions? So whether that's, you know, mobility work, whether that's stability work, whether that's um, just training a player to understand what that position should feel like when they're in it. So there's the movement m- movement training side of it. Then there's the, does the player have the strength to get into and control those positions? So we'll put a focus on isometric strength in some of those deep positions. Um, in addition to, you know, even just prolonged eccentric work, hitting that position, pausing, and then coming out of it fast to help improve the eccentric strength and the, the t- tissue strength um, going into those positions. And then the last one, which, you know, I, I think is, well, I shouldn't say the last one. Then there's also the traditional j- jump training and, you know, making sure that uh, both from a jump progression standpoint and even a sprint progression standpoint that players are able to quickly get into those positions, control them, and then get out of them. So, you know, some of our single leg bounding patterns, um, even some of our, you know, hur- hurdle hop progressions are emphasizing hitting some of those deeper positions at angles and then transitioning out of them. So um, I, I think the the gap that we've identified in our strategy really centers around loaded eccentric rate of force development where, you know, we have some of these, every, every strategy that you use falls somewhere along the force velocity continuum, right? So, yep. you know, we have some of these uh, heavy resistance, eccentric strength oriented strategies and then we have some of these strictly body weight, um, eccentric loading strategies as far as jump landings and transitions, uh, jump transitions, sprint transitions, those sorts of things. And um, more in the middle there is e- eccentric rate of force development work where we're trying to emphasize an overload element of hitting the brakes as fast as possible. And, you know, yeah. I... I posted a video uh, the other week of just a forward lunge hitting in the bottom position and trying to hit the brakes as fast as possible, which is different than letting your foot hit with your knee just slightly bent and then absorbing it all the way down into the bottom position. The focus here is really hit in the bottom and don't move so Mm -hmm. that there's a very small arc of movement, a very high, you know, deceleration impulse. Yep. Um, and then teaching that and then knowing that because of the, the load associated with that, that when we then ask them to transition back into some of the more body weight movement patterns, they're going to have a higher threshold to be able to hit those transitions at higher speeds 
instill control and transition out of them. Yep. No, I love that because this was something that, you know, classically trained, you know, they used to talk about, oh, how much, how much do they say you could lower in your squat, right? Like 140%, right? I don't know about you. I'm not loading up any of my NBA basketball players with 140% of their back squat max and trying to test their eccentric strength that way. So that didn't really work for me. But I always saw, okay, we need some slow loaded, just more strength building or force building eccentric work, but I'm 100% with you. This is where I've spent a lot of like the last two, two to three off seasons with these guys is this very like impulse driven, like, hey, how quickly can we stop? And and you use like the perfect term impulse, right? So I just think of it as how quickly can we spike the break? So if you're looking at it via biofeedback or force plates or whatever, you see that big spike so that you know, like, hey, we're putting a lot of force into the ground. We're distributing those forces, hopefully, across the body. And it's a timing issue, too, because you'll see a lot of younger athletes, when they try and do that, it's like they'll hit and they'll wobble or whatever. The best athletes, man, they hit and they stop, and it's pretty cool to watch. It's, like, immediate. No, that's it. that's exactly it. And, you know, I, I suspect that if you looked at the, uh, the impulses on force plates, you would see that there are some pretty significant differences between a, you know, a, a drop squat or uh, even a jump landing versus a loaded single leg lunge like that, where you're hitting in the bottom of the position, both in the duration of the force absorption and then the total impulse as well. Yep. Yep. Very cool. And where are you putting this into a program? Is this something that you're like focusing on for like a specific training block is it something you're spreading out and kind of dosing throughout the off season? Like, where does that fit for you? Yeah, it's a good question. We are primarily front loading that into our off season program. So we we go yeah. through a a uh, initial phase that is really intended to uh, serve as a transition for the athletes in you know moving away from kind of an in season training program or some time off after the end of the year back into a you know our off season program. Players are training five days a week, so. Um, that phase for us this year really emphasized a lot of isometric work in deep positions um, in a full body circuit format to, um, you know, there's a few different goals there, but it's it's preparing the tissue to absorb more load <laughs> moving forward yeah. um, and improving the player's work capacity. And then in the next phase, we start to introduce uh, more sprint work as m- more of a technique emphasis um, start to introduce a little bit of jumping, but that's where we're going to introduce our eccentric rate of force development work, like we just mentioned, and then also our eccentric strength work. So within a training day, that would fall, you know, that example that I gave would fall very early within the day where we want the athletes to be fresh. We want their their focus and their intent to be maximal um, yeah. because it is essentially a, a loaded power exercise uh, yes. within our program. And then we move into the the slower stuff afterwards. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's a shift in thinking, right? Because we always think of, uh, or we tend to think of power activities solely as like overcoming activities or explosive activities with, you know, a jump or a clean or something like that, a box jump. You don't think of it so much in the opposite sense where you're working on, you know, the, the lowering or the deceleration component of it. But yeah, that's exactly how I'm setting it up. So for you guys 
NHL, do you typically have what three to four month off seasons about the off season program for us is always a moving target because you never know how long of a time you're going to have until it's over. So, um, you know, I, I think if you are, are fortunate to go on a long run, then you may have less than three months in your off season program. Um, some of the teams that are out of it a little earlier may have closer to five, um, just depending on how eager players are to, uh, to get started again. So, um, for us, it's it's close to right in between those two. We have right around a four month off season. So, um, a lot of our phases are are three weeks typically, and um, okay. that gives us some room to not just have kind of a standard. You know, we're going to go through a a anatomical adaptation and then an eccentric strength, and you know, kind of work your way through that progression. But that gives us some flexibility too to if a player really wants to focus on different areas, we can start to shift some phases around and then add more work for the quality that is, is most limiting for that player in the off season. So um, it, it also, for the players that go straight through, which um, we have some of those that it, it builds in varying the stress helps allow them to continue to go without building in a traditional, you know, deload week or off week in the middle of the off season. Right. No, that's cool. I like that a lot. And like you said, I like the idea of being able to to cater to some individual needs because, you know, not every guy's the same, right? The guy that's 38 and has played for whatever, 18 years is probably a lot different to manage than the 22-year-old kid that's gung-ho and just coming into the league. So it gives you that ability and that freedom to make things more individual for them. Oh, definitely. I mean, we our, our off-season program, we have five tracks that players generally fall into. And then within wow. each one of those, we will uh, obviously comb through the program and make individual adjustments to exercise selection based on some of the factors we talked about before. But then everybody's off-season is a little different too, as far as you know, what some guys have weddings, honeymoons, children being born, um, you know, some players really benefit from having a slightly longer rest to start the off season. Some players prefer to jump right back into it and then, you know, maybe sprinkle in some, some time off throughout the off season, um, depending on a lot of factors. But yeah. what that means for us is that even within those five tracks, we might have one player that has a 16 week off season program and another that has a 14, you know, we just have to right. make some adjustments based on the individual needs. But, uh, always the thought process is what is in the best interest of this player and, and what can we put together for them? That's going to allow them to, you know, obviously continue to capitalize on their strengths to appreciate where they are in their development cycle and um, you know, their, their uh, potential durability concerns and where they are in their career, but then also help them continue to make some progress in areas that are important for them. Very cool. Okay, so this is actually a reader slash listener question, uh, and it actually fits in perfectly to kind of what we're talking about here. Uh, Unfortunately, I did not write down the gentleman's name, so my apologies. But he wanted to know where you guys implement your plyos in the offseason if the goal is to also improve strength. So how do you find that that balance there between those two? Yeah, I I think the... (laughs) There's a, you know, I, we just talked a little bit about <clears throat> how the emphasis of phases will progress throughout the offseason. So, you know, I, I think in a sport like hockey, there there needs to be some exposure 
to all of the physical qualities from a bird's eye view standpoint. You know, even if yep. a player says, I just want to improve speed, you can't not expose them to strength work because at the end of the day, they're going to need uh, that quality when they step on the ice. So absolutely, um, it's really a matter of how we're going to emphasize and prioritize phases for players with different goals. But specific to plyometric work, I, I think the how you perform the exercises can lend itself to more, you know, shifting a little bit more to the strength end of the force velocity continuum um, than others. So, you know, loaded jumps, for example, are going to require, you know, slower contraction times, but higher forces and uh, higher power output. So for somebody that really needs to prioritize strength, that may be something that that might, we might prioritize loaded jumps for that athlete more than somebody that, maybe is a little bit more speed driven where we're uh, even if we're loading them, maybe it's at lower loads than the strength emphasis athlete. I think you can also disadvantage some positions. So, you know, sprint starts, for example, if you start from a half kneeling or lateral half kneeling position, that's going to be a little bit more of a slower, higher impulse, higher force requirement start type for sprinting than starting upright, which uh, there's, you know, a little less that needs to be overcome to get the athlete making forward progress there. So um, those are some considerations, even just, you know, starting jumps from the bottom position, more bottoms up, uh, split squat jumps, um, you know, even box jumps starting from a bottom position. Those are all ways that within a team program, even if everybody's in there at once, you can have, you know, one group doing something where they're starting from the bottom, another group that is emphasizing more of a, you know, either a faster bias starting position or starting from a position that allows them to capitalize on a stretch reflex and stretch shortening cycle to a higher degree. Very cool. Okay. So we've talked a lot about training. I want to talk about just life in the NHL a little bit. Uh, because we just had Lauren Lando on a couple weeks ago. Love just his thought process. He spent five years in the NFL with the Denver Broncos. So get a different perspective from a different sport. You've been in the NHL for a while now, right? Like you said, with San Jose, now with Boston. And this is very open-ended. What are some lessons you've learned along the way? Yeah, I, I think uh, to start, every season brings unique challenges. Um, you know, no, no two seasons are the same. The schedule is challenging every year, but then within that every year creates some unique challenges. So, for example, this year we played every Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday for the last six weeks of the year. With one exception, which I think was week five, we did not have a game on Tuesday, but we still had Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, and the Saturday, Sunday before that. So, um, you know, with that, there's some benefits to the regularity of the schedule. But the reality is you're, what you're doing from a training standpoint, what you're recommending from a practice load standpoint, you know, how you're helping players manage the recovery process and and just manage the stress of that type of schedule is different um, than it would be if you're, you know, maybe playing 13 games in a month and you have a couple, two or three day windows in between games throughout that stretch. So, um, you know, I think I've just really learned to appreciate that you're, you can be very rigid in your philosophy and the general, 
things that you think are important to the process, but you have to be very flexible in, in the methods and the timing of those uh, recommendations. So um, that's a big one. And then, you know, there's also just the layers of, you know, what does your roster look like at any given moment? Do you have your full team healthy? Are you going through a phase where you might have a couple guys that have suffered injuries? You know, how is that affecting the rest of the roster? Meaning, you know, we uh, in the NHL, you have 23 players that have rostered, 20 of which suit up for game night. So on any given night, you have three extra players. Depending on the makeup of the team, those players may be cycling in and out of the lineup on a regular basis, or they may be out of the lineup for prolonged periods of time. So, you know, I've I've used the example before that I've seen players go from being a healthy scratch and out of the lineup one night um, and potentially for several weeks in a row to then being on the first line, their first game back in. So... <laughs> Um, just man, we're on the first D pair where they're playing 18 to 22 minutes that next night in. So, you know, I think keeping in mind how quickly things can change and, and managing, you know, some of the, uh, you know, potential mental fatigue and doubt that might come in and some of those players about their importance to the, the process and the team and just making sure that they stay engaged and stay ready, knowing that, you know, you're one injury away from from having a very important, prominent role potentially on the team. So, um, you know, I think just the importance of that, of, of keeping that present and not letting players slip because of the role that they're currently in. Um, hockey, maybe more than any other sport, there's a lot of shifting up and down in the lineup. And you know, one of one of my goals is to always keep the player prepared at a minimum to take on the next role above what they're being asked to do. So if it's a player like that. that typically pays, plays 12 minutes a night, if they get bumped up into a second, third line, you know, kind of a middle six forward role, they might be playing 15, 16, 17 minutes a night. So, you know, we kind of look at that and use that as a target to make sure that if players need to be doing extra work at practice or potentially some extra conditioning work at a game, that if that is then asked of them that, they are not only prepared, but then also they know that they're prepared and they feel confident that from a physical standpoint, at least that they're going to be ready to take on that, that added stress. So um, I think those are, those are some of the big things that uh, just stand out is just making sure that you, you plan to the extent that's possible, but then also know that, you know, there's, there's going to be curveballs that pop up throughout every season and just making sure that, you are uh, prepared as the coach for those, but then also that you're keeping players prepared for those instances. Well, and what's interesting too, is if you're li listening at home and you think, oh, 12 minutes and you have to go to 15, 16, that doesn't sound too bad until you realize, number one, the intensity level, but that's a 25 to 33% spike in workload, right? Like that's massive at the level you guys are playing at. So it may not sound like much, just... Oh, what's three to four extra minutes? Sure. But as to what you're compared to or what you've been training at and for to go up to that next tier, that's a big jump. Yeah, I don't know that it's exactly a in apples to apples comparison here, but if if you've never skated at that level or attempted to skate at that intensity, <laughs> um, three minutes of ice time is almost the the feeling equivalent of six extra wing gates. So maybe oh my that, gosh. Uh, 
that put <laughs> six wind gates alone was enough, man. <laughs> I remember doing that one back in the day. That was not fun. Um, okay, next. I love hearing these. Give me a day in the life. You're in the middle of the the in season grind time. You know, it's February, March, whatever. What does an average day look like for you? When are you in? When are you out? What do you do in between? Yeah, we uh, we generally have two days. We have a practice day and then we have a game day. And the practice day, yep. um, we're typically in by 6.30 to 7. Um, usually the staff works out together, kind of get showered, have breakfast. And then um, for us, we're setting up our, you know, our wearable technology units before players get on the ice. Um, you know, we'll meet, like I mentioned before, the medical staff, just do a quick debrief on anything that we need to be aware of, what our plans are for the day from a training standpoint. We'll review any players that are injured and, and what the plan is for them um, on and off the ice and from a treatment standpoint. Um, we typically, by 8.30 to 9, we'll have any injured players will be in the building and, and starting their process. So if guys, uh, they might be getting treatment first, but... Then they'll come into us, warm up, potentially skate. So we'll have somebody out there that's um, helping with the on-ice monitoring standpoint. Then they come in afterwards and they'll work out with us after they skate most days. In parallel with that, basically when the injured guys, uh, injured player, injured players go on the ice, the the rest of the team will start to trickle in. They'll go through their um, pre-practice warm-up process. If we have any training that day, they'll go through that as well. Then they'll go onto the ice for practice. The injured guys come off, and that's when they're training. Um, when the players go on for practice, uh, you know, again, we we are clipping drills and um, facilitating the on-ice monitoring side of things. And then when they come off, any guys that have to finish training will do that. And then, you know, we collect all of our units, download the, the data, process that and then we spend uh spend some time putting together reports and any feedback that we need to send to the coaching staff or to the medical staff afterwards so um typical practice day you know we might be walking out of the rink anywhere between uh, 2 and two thirty in the afternoon um yeah. game days are very similar in the morning um, except instead of practice, players are coming in for either a morning skate or just meetings, treatments. Um, you know, some players will go through some sort of workout the morning of a game or some sort of, of preparatory process. We have uh, a few different strategies that, depending on the schedule and the time of year, we'll implement on the morning of games. Um, and then whether they skate or not, we typically leave just a little bit earlier. You know, you have a couple hour break in the middle of the day and then you're back at the rink for the game at 3.30 or 4. Um, players start to come in afterwards. You're, you know, there's a balance between stocking the fridges, making sure that the supplements guys need are available, um, being available for any individual requests with, with pregame warm-ups and routines that way. Um, and then during the game, during the first period of the game, the players that are not playing will come in and train then, you know, second period, you're, you're making post-game shakes and, uh, you know, we're working with the chefs to make sure the meal's set up and everything's all set there. And then uh, after the game, oftentimes players will come in and uh, go through some sort of quick training process or some sort of recovery and cool down before moving on. And then, you know, obviously if we're 
home, you know, the day wraps up or home around midnight or so. If, if we're traveling afterwards or if we're on the road, then you're headed to an airport, hopping on a plane and flying to the next city. So um, those days, you know, I obviously can, can be long. You're in the facility at six thirty seven in the morning. You're not home till midnight on the early end. If you're on the road, yeah. you might be landing in the next city at 2 a.m. And then you, you know, we ride to the rink. We help unload all the equipment, hang the player's gear so that it can dry, you know, get back to the hotel at three, four in the morning and then start it all over again the next day. So, uh, oh my gosh, man. So game day, you don't even, it's not like you're just sitting there having a beer, watching the game. Like you're literally working the entire game. You don't even really get to watch the game. It sounds like. Yeah. I, we, uh, you know, we're, especially at home, we have TVs in our, in our okay. uh, training area. So, while the players are working out, we have the game on TV, but yeah, we're not, it's not like we're sitting in the stands and watching the game. And then, you know, typically you get half a period to a period between the second and third where you can sit down and actually watch it. Um, I like to watch it with our video coaches because you get a sense of how they're looking at it, you know, any potential Mm -hmm. challenge opportunities and um, you get a little bit of the coaching perspective on, on how the game's going when you're watching it with them. So um, I try to squeeze in as much time in that room as I can, but there's also, you know, those are opportunities, Mike, where like, you know, we have uh, invoices that need to be filed with our accounting department. There are emails that need to be responded to um, both within the organization and outside of it. So um, a lot of times that time during the game, during the second or third periods where you have a break from actually working hands-on with the athletes or when you try to, squeeze in some of that extra work as well man so you mean like when somebody like me is spamming you in the middle of the season asking you to come on a podcast yeah emails exactly. like that <laughs> and most of my emails back are sorry for the delayed response but <laughs> yes but no I'd i know love, i'm the I'd same love way to follow up in four months and i'll be right there that's right so. that's right okay a couple more here what are some mistakes you made in your five years being a head strength and conditioning coach and you know what or how would you or how have you changed or evolved over that time yeah i think uh i I think one that comes to mind is just taking for granted what players know and you know we when i first started uh i had a meeting with our leadership committee and you know just really quickly ran through the philosophy of things that I thought were important and why we were doing certain things, why it was important to me that we had a warm up before every practice day, why, you know, what we were using on ice monitoring data for and, and what we were not using uh, that type of information for. Um, and we ran through a lot of those things. Uh, and over the course of that first year, there was a lot of questions on nutrition and supplementation and uh, within game hydration and, and a lot of topics that I think are foundational performance topics to the players. Right. And we were fortunate in my first few years there that we had a pretty consistent roster. There wasn't a ton of turnover throughout that group. And as that started to change, as we had more players leaving and more new players coming in, you know, I found myself answering a lot of questions that I know that I had answered before. And, you know, it was a little bit of a, a aha moment for me that the players aren't thinking about this as much as the staff is, right? So, yes. yes. And even if you've told them something, 
it's likely that over the course of weeks or months or years or seconds that they've forgotten <laughs> what you've said to them about, you know, why something might be helpful in a certain situation or why one strategy is better in a situation than the other. So um, this year, what we did is we put together what, you know, I've kind of described as an internal education campaign. And we created a, a series of you know, informational slides, some of which were more, you know, kind of billboard, like, did you know, um, attention grabbing, at least that was the thought process with the, yeah. the headlines and imagery to highlight some of the topics that I thought was important for players to be aware of, um, not just a potential benefit of a particular strategy, you know, whether that's recovery strategy or a supplement or the importance of sleep, but um, it's important for them to not just know what that is and what the benefit is, but why it may work. And, and I think that this, you know, passive diffusion of information is a way that players can kind of come in, seeing it may cue their memory. And then it, it may spark a behavior change that, mm or a reminder for them to get back to a particular behavior um, that they may have abandoned just out of, out of, you know, falling back into certain habits and routines. So um, that was something that I, I found incredibly beneficial for our group this year and something that will continue to evolve over the, the years to come and just, you know, even keeping the messaging the same, but rotating imagery. So, you know, players don't get sick of looking at the same thing, but you know, the, right. the players are, Nowadays, players are consuming information on social media. They're listening to some of the same podcasts that we are, and they're getting a lot of information without necessarily the filter to understand when a strategy is really beneficial and when it can be right. potentially harmful for them. So um, that was something that we wanted to really get ahead of and you know, try to put our stamp on some of the big rocks and making sure that players had access to that information. And, you know, some players are going to uh, anchor onto that more than others, but um, at least then you're improving the exposure rate of some of this education information to them. Yeah, man, I really like that. One thing I always have to remind myself of too, and I find this is true with athletes as well as young coaches, when you've worked with a certain group for a while, right? you kind of know what they know and you can have certain conversations with them because they do, they have that filter. They've got context built in, right? They've got experience and reps. But one thing I have to remind myself of is that just as my, hopefully my uh, knowledge base grows, right? When I get somebody new, their knowledge base has not grown with me, right? Their knowledge base is still down here. So like you alluded to, I can't take for granted what they do or don't know. And that's true whether I'm talking about a new athlete or potentially a new coach, an intern that's in my gym, right? Like they still have a lot of the same questions that those interns had 10 years ago because they're here. They're starting at the, the base level. So I think that's so important. And I love that idea of having just like that internal messaging and having some of those, did you know? Because maybe they're just processing it or maybe it's going to stimulate a conversation where they're like, hey, I never thought of this. Could you explain this in more depth to me? And so now you get a unique opportunity to educate some of these athletes. Sure. Yeah. And there's, there's an element of, uh, of they now then know that, that we feel something is important. So maybe if it's something that they thought it was, you know, no big deal to gloss over or 
you know, in the case of a supplement, you know, I'll take it when I think of it, but it doesn't really matter if I do it consistently. Right. Now there's a reinforcement that, that this is important, not just, uh, not just to us, but then there's also a real benefit to you doing it. So, um, you know, I, I think to your point, you do have, everybody is somewhere along this education continuum. And, you know, I think, uh, to an extent, it's important to just reinforce the basic things over and over and over too. Even if players have heard them before, just know that this is still important, even though it's not new and captivating, you know, I think, uh, right creatine is maybe a supplement that kind of falls into that category where it's been around yeah. so long that people almost forget how powerful it can be for depending yes. on what the goal is, obviously. But um, there's that. But then we also try to try to rotate our messages so that if we have several that are showing up on a screen, there are some that are more basic and some that are a little bit more pr progressive or more advanced yeah. so that you're uh, attempting to speak to both audiences at once. Casting a wide net, right? That's it. I just bought I just bought some creatine today, man. Not for myself. I, I don't I don't need any more any more <laughs> meat. But one of my guys does. Trying to put a little meat on him. Okay, one more big question, man. What kind of professional goals have you set for yourself? Again, you've spent a lot of time in the league now. You've seen a lot of things. You've been an assistant. You've been ahead. What are your goals professionally for next season? Yeah, I, I think there's. Uh, there's a couple. I mean, one at this level for the whole organization, there's really only one goal and that's to win. Right. So everybody right. is, is working towards that from, you know, the moment one season ends, you're, you're immediately looking at putting yourself and doing whatever you can to help support the organization, being in a position to compete for it the next year. So, um, you know, that, that understood, <laughs> I think there's, there are a couple things. Uh, one within our group, I, I think making the data that we collect from the players accessible to the players on a, a higher level is important to me. You know, we've been clear from the start that their data is their data and they're allowing us to access it to help help them and help support their development and performance. That's always been my philosophy, sure. but I think it's 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 helpful where the players can access the information whenever they want. So um, we will likely look at putting together some sort of app internally so that the players have constant 24 seven access to their information and wow. also put together some visualizations that, you know, again, similar to what we just talked about, maybe spark some conversations that are not happening. If it's not a, you know, there's a tendency to wait for the red flag or, you know, to anticipate the red flag and then focus on that instead of maybe acknowledge some positive changes along the way as well. Um, or, you know, have a player, I didn't feel good. This is showing this and maybe they become a little bit more proactive in some of those discussions as well. So um, that's a big one for us. And then, you know, I think from an organization standpoint, we're we're clearly going through a transition this year. We're losing some prominent veteran um players from our lineup. And as a result of that, you know, we're going to go through uh, a pretty significant change to the construction of our roster. So, you know, I think one, just, just looking at the development process within the organization and, you know, that goes all the way from in hockey players get drafted and then you frequently don't see them in the organization for another two, three years where, they're off playing with their junior team or they're in a different country playing for, for a team there. Um, some players may go to college and they're in a college system for three years before signing a contract. 
um, even for our minor league team before eventually mm-hmm. coming to us. So, you know, there's a, a three to five year window between when you draft a player and when you may actually be seeing them at the NHL level. So, wow. you know, what, what players are doing in that time can have a significant impact on how, you know, quote unquote NHL ready they are when their time approaches for them to make that transition. Um, you know, similar thought process at the AHL level, I think just, you know, really working with our staff there to find opportunities to, to improve. And, you know, there's obviously things that you can look at at the end of every year and, and reflect on positively and say that, you know, this is something that we feel we did a really good job of. And, you know, I think if, if you're being honest, there's always some opportunities you can look back on and say, you know, we can, we can improve in this area. And and that might be the strategies that you take. It might mean bolstering resources. It might mean bolstering education in certain areas. So um, that's where some of my attention will be focused next year is, is organizationally, you know, how can our department really make a positive impact across the organization and not just necessarily on the, you know, the 20 to 23 players that are suiting up for our team on a given night. Very cool. Okay. Home stretch, my guy. Last but not least, lightning round. Four questions. Your answer can be as long or short as you like. All right. Number one, I saw your post on IG about saunas. Man, first off, I need one. I was going to ask if the Bruins would buy me one. But what preference do you have there? Because I feel like there's so many different types. Is there one that you would prefer? Yeah, so there's there's generally two types. There's an infrared and then there's the traditional ambient heat saunas. And <clears throat> the general theory with the infrared saunas is that the infrared waves penetrate to deeper layers of tissue. So it can influence deeper layers, layers of tissue and create internal temperature increases, but at lower ambient temperatures. So it's a little less uncomfortable to sit through. Um, potentially right. influencing deeper tissues and delivering similar benefits. Um, okay. The reality is that the overwhelming majority of the research on saunas is on traditional ambient heat saunas. So okay. um, sh- short answer is if I, I could only pick one, I would probably stick with the traditional ambient heat ambient. temperature. Okay. Um, there are some companies now that are making saunas that can do both. So uh, if you're hedging your bets, I would buy one of those. They tend to be a little bit more expensive. But um, I, I think that saunas are one of the more powerful adaptation and performance supporting uh, modalities that we have access to, both in terms of health and athletic performance today. And I, I think we'll continue to see not just an increase in popularity, but in the availability of some of these products in uh, at price points that are maybe a little more tolerable for the typical person. Yeah. Okay. Number two, how's dad life? Dad life is great. Um, you know, we were talking earlier. I, my son just turned six, my daughter will turn three in September. So um, there's never a dull moment uh, in our house. I think <laughs> the, it, it's just amazing to watch how fast things change and, um, it's just been a lot of fun to watch how they develop and how they anchor on to certain, certain activities and the way that their personality evolves over time. So um, my son just in the last six to eight months has really latched onto sports and in almost an obsessive way, just, you know, everything he, 
loves playing baseball. He loves playing hockey. He loves uh, shooting basketballs. He, he just loves being active in that way. And um, also is obsessed with American Ninja Warrior and uh, this <laughs> Ultimate yeah. Beastmaster show that's on Netflix. So, you know, every day uh, he's like climbing up the walls and swinging from the molding through our, our doorways. And, um, no, no broken <laughs> bones awesome. yet. So it's been a lot of fun and uh, it's fun to watch our daughter try to keep up with him. That's awesome, man. Uh, number three, I know summer is a whirlwind, right? It's your off season, but off season workouts, combines, all the stuff that goes into drafting new players, any summer plans you have that you're excited about? Yeah, we, um, so we have our, every year we have uh, a continuing education seminar for all the strength and conditioning coaches and professional hockey. It's actually open to the the public as well, but um, that'll take place in Phoenix in a couple weeks. So um, good opportunity, I think, to obviously sit down and learn from some really high caliber speakers, um, some yeah. people that are probably mutual friends and friends to the show. I know uh, Anthony Donskov is speaking this year, oh, Adam yeah. Virgil speaking, um, Vicky Bendis, who's uh, she'll be speaking this year as well as a really bright mind in the speed training and, and hockey space. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. It's also an opportunity to catch up with a lot of friends and colleagues around the league. So um, that's in a couple weeks. And then my, uh, my wife's family does a trip together every summer for a week. This year we're going to Maine together. That's oh, nice. uh, I think the third week in July. So looking forward to that. And then we, uh, we have some friends down in the Jacksonville area that um, were in New Jersey with us and we, uh, when we live there and they have since moved down there. So we're going to go spend some time with them later in the summer as well. So a um, couple things to look forward to outside. Of the yeah. Office. Yeah. You just need a Pacific Northwest and then you've got all four corners of the United States there. That's, That's pretty it. impressive. Maybe, uh, if, maybe I'll try to catch the next complete coaching certification out in That's right. Seattle. Get one in Seattle. I just did one in Seattle. Maybe I do Portland or something like that. Yeah. Let me know. <laughs> okay, man. La what last but not least, What's next for Kevin Neal, man? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think I, over the next several months and in, in, into the next year, I'm hoping to revamp my website and kind of dust off the uh, the newsletter as well. And there we go. Nice. Um, you know, it's, you know, I mentioned before that our, our athletes are consuming information from social media. That's been one of the major driving forces for me starting to get back out and put some content on mm -hmm. there to, you know, helpfully, again, just kind of slow drip information in front of some of the players that maybe sparks some information or sparks conversation or, you know, maybe lets them know that I am looking at some of the same information that that has caught their interest as well. So, um, you know, I'm going to continue to do my best to stay active on on Instagram and through some of the other social media accounts and then continue to share information is, you know, I feel pretty strongly that I have benefited tremendously in my career from some of the information that people like yourself and Eric and, and Mike Boyle and many others have uh, have donated really a lot of their time to to share with the the industry and for people that are up and coming through it. So, um, you know, I want to do my part to try to help give back as well. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well, Kevin. It's always great catching up with you. I know you are super busy, so I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. Where can my listeners find out more about you? Tell me about the social website, all that good stuff. 
Sure. Yeah. I think the, the two main spots, my website is just kevinneal.com. And then my Instagram handle is just at Kevin Neal. So I'm pretty easy to find there, but um, you know, you can hit me up through the contact page on the website too, or uh, through any of the social media channels. So um, that's it. It's the best place to find me. I love it, man. We'll, we'll make sure we get the links in the show notes. And again, Kevin, so great catching up, man. Thanks for coming on. Cool. Thanks, Mike. All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Kevin Neald. Really hope you enjoyed it. Like I said up top, I'm not a hardcore hockey guy, but I love talking with Kevin. We've interacted numerous times over the years. He's such a wealth of knowledge. And I think when you talk to or you interact with people like this that are outside your comfort zone or outside your unique uh, zone of domain knowledge, and you try and absorb as much as you can, and then you take that and you process it then you take it into your world. It just gives you so much more perspective. It helps you understand what certain people are dealing with, their issues, their struggles, and then it allows you to zoom out and then zoom back in into your world and say, okay, well, these are the things that people like Kevin are doing to see success and that get better results. So I, I will implore you until the cows come home, listen to all of these shows because I think each of our guests has unique areas of genius and when we listen to these people, even if it doesn't seem incredibly relevant to us in the moment, having that perspective, learning from their life experiences can ultimately make us better trainers, better coaches, and better rehab professionals. So if you enjoyed this episode with Kevin, small favor to ask. If you're not already, go and subscribe to the show. We're everywhere iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store. We're on YouTube Podcast now. We're ever. You listen to shows wherever is best for you. Go there and subscribe right now so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. Second, if you're already subscribed, thank you. Go one step further. If you enjoyed this show with Kevin, please share this with somebody that you feel like would benefit from his unique zone of genius. He's such a smart guy, such great thoughts. Man, just share this episode with them. Doesn't matter. It could be email, could be social media. Whatever works for you, just help us put the word out because, man, I'm like six, seven years in now. I still love doing this show because we have such great people and I learn something every time I do a show and hopefully you're learning something every time you listen to a show. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.